Erev Tov, Shalom Aleichem. We are finishing the last part of the shiur on the life of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, who is the leader of transition between the end of the era of the Bede Mikdash and the beginning of our new life in Galut and exile. What we discussed last time was the understanding that in order for the Jewish people to survive in a world in which we knew that there was not going to be a Ben Mignash anymore, that we needed to set up shop somewhere else. And Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai transferred the headquarters of the Jewish people from Yerushalayim, Yer Kodesh to Yavne, where he said, Ten li Yavne v'chachameha, grant me safety for Yavne and the sages of Yavne allow the family of Rabban Gamliel to come so that our royalty will not be lost and grant me a doctor for Tzadok, Rabbi Tzadok, who was fasting for 40 years before the destruction of the Ben Mikdash. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai also famously shifts the focus of Judaism from the temple and the Ben Mikdash and sacrifices and all of those things he shifts it back to Torah, learning Torah, gemilut chasadim, doing kindness to others. And that's the story that we left off with last week, if you see, on 502 in the middle of the column. So if you want to come closer, you're welcome to. I just have the table set up this way. Pamachat, one time. Haya Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai yotzei Yerushalayim. Rabban Yochanan, the son of Zakai, was leaving Yerushalayim. Rabbi Yoshua was walking with him. And he saw the Ben Mikdash, the ruins of the Ben Mikdash. Rabbi Yoshua said, Woe to us for the Ben Mikdash is destroyed. The place where Kadosh Baruch forgives the wrongdoings of the Jewish people. Amar lo, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai turns to Rabbi Yoshua and says, Beni, my son, al yira'a levavecha. You know this term, Beni, to speak to somebody, a senior person speaking to a junior person. Very often you find Chachamim will refer to people as Beni, Biti, my son, my daughter. Achi, my brother, Achoti, my sister, Yonati, Tamati, we have in Shira Shrim all these beautiful titles. In America, in English, we don't have these words. Maybe some people, if you're in Pacific Beach, are, hey bro, yeah, but that's not how they really speak normally. Nobody calls you brother. Our cousins, the Ishmaelim, are very particular about this. They greet you with a term like, Habibi, my beloved, brother, sister, uncle, aunt. It's a ridiculous thing that I'm Israel, sir, ma'am, all these distant titles. Another person is your brother, they're your sister, you're older than them, then they're your, they're your children, they're your nieces, they're your nephews. They're people who you are required to take care of. You tell a story once of a bus driver in Harnof. He was driving his bus in the streets of Jerusalem. And he sees a little kid running into the street to catch his ball. And the bus driver slams the brakes on this big bus. And he tells, hey kid, are you crazy? What are you in the middle of the street? Get back to the sidewalk. So what does an Israeli kid do? He looks at the bus driver, puts his hand on his hips, and he says, you're not my dad, don't tell me what to do. And the bus driver, he says, you know, I'm not your dad, but I'm your uncle. Go back to the sidewalk. And he drives away. Bni, my son, says Rabban Yochanan Zakai. Al lacha. Don't let it hurt you. Yesh lanu kapara kmota. We have another way to atone for our averot that is just like it. Veze, which one? Is the gemilut chasadim. That's doing kindness to other people. Shnemar, like Hoshea, the prophet tells us, I yearn for chesed, not for sacrifices. HaKadosh Baruch is not lacking dead cows in his life. He's not missing any he-goats or she-goats. HaKadosh Baruch is missing here people having chesed. The world is built on chesed. We have something that we don't need a bit of mikdash for. You can do chesed right now, and it does a kapara for you what the bit of mikdash can also do. In the years after the destruction of the temple, 
עמד רבן יוחנן בן זכאי בראש הסנהדרין. רבן יוחנן בן זכאי stood at the head of the Sanhedrin. What do you see from here? Even though the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed, you could still have a Sanhedrin. Don't listen to those who tell you that that's part and parcel. How can you have a Bet HaMikdash without a Sanhedrin? People are praying, we're waiting for Mashiach to come. The Bet HaMikdash is going to pop out of the sky. It's a wonderful fantasy. And it's going to land on the Temple Mount. What's it going to do? It's going to crush all the people on the Temple Mount? What about the Dome of the Rock? It's going to break it? What's going to happen to the Mikdash? It's going to fall out of the sky? How are you going to have a bit of Mikdash fall out of the sky? What about the Mashiach? When's the Mashiach coming? We're waiting for the Mashiach to come. How can the Mashiach come? What is the Mashiach? What is his job description? He's a prophet. He's a king, perhaps. Menach. How do you decree someone to be a prophet or a king without a Sanhedrin? How can you have someone be the Mashiach if you didn't build a Sanhedrin? You're waiting for something that can't happen because you didn't do the work. Ami says, you don't have a Sanhedrin, now you're going to wait for Mashiach. Wait, wait your whole life, you're going to wait. Of course, if not, he's just another guy. Ah, but they told me in Mashiach, we're going to go to Israel. Oh, but the Jews have already gone to Israel. I don't know what to break it to. You're not waiting for that anymore. There will not come another time in history the Jews are getting a magic carpet and going back there and say, we did that already in 1948. The choice to go to Israel is in your hands. You have a thousand dollars? You can go to Israel. That's a choice you make. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not coming to, to pull you out of here by your peot. The Ben Mikdash, the Sanhedrin, you can build the Ben Mikdash if you really want to. Amisal doesn't believe in a Bede Mikdash, so you don't have a Bede Mikdash. A Sanhedrin? You don't even need a Bede Mikdash for a Sanhedrin. A Sanhedrin we should have already yesterday. All of the chaos that you and I know to be the Jewish community is because of a lack of a Sanhedrin. We're living in a broken halachic system. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai was the head of the Sanhedrin. And he also became the Rosh Yeshiva of the Bede Mikdash that he built in Yavne. From here on, Shakad Latet the Merkaza Torah Hadash Biavne, et Otamidata Samhucha Etala Bedin Hagadolchi Birushalam. From here on out, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai did everything in his power to make his yeshiva in Yavne, the Jewish community of Yavne, the Sanhedrin of Yavne, this is a Sanhedrin in exile, to give them all of the power and authority of the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin that was sitting in Jerusalem. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai makes a few takanot that the people need. He does them as the Sanhedrin. He does them zechel amikdash, in memory of the Ben Amikdash. Achat mehen, one of them, is coming up now. There's two famous takanot of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai that have to do with repositioning the Supreme Jewish Court in Yavne as opposed to Jerusalem. Two rules that he makes. The first has to do with Rosh Hashanah. If you want, you don't have to, but I could read it to you out loud. If you look, in Masechet Rosh Hashanah, in chapter 4 of Masechet Rosh Hashanah. So you go to the Talmud, go to Safaria, click Talmud. Click on Talmud, find yourself in Masechet Rosh Hashanah. You're going to click on the drop-down arrow at the top and find yourself on page 29b. The Mishnah in the middle of the page says, Yom Tov Shel Rosh Hashanah. When Rosh Hashanah chal yot b'Shabbat, falls out on Shabbat, do you blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah when it falls out on Shabbat? It depends on. Very good. Depends where you are. Bamigdash are you talking? In the Ben Midrash, in front of the Sanhedrin, they blew the shofar. Avalobamdina, but not in the rest of Israel. My wife blew the Did you say 29b? Yes, 29b of Masechet Rosh in the middle, you should find a Mishnah over there, Yom Tov Shel Rosh Hashanah. Of course. 
So the rest of Israel did not blow the shofar on Shabbat. When the Ben Mikdash was destroyed, Hitkin Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai, Shiyu Tokin Bechol Makom, Shiyesh Mobedin. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai made a decree that you blow the shofar in every place where there is a bedin. Amar Rabbi Alazar, Rabbi Alazar says, Lo Hitkin Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai, Ela Biyavne Bivad. There's already an argument. Did the Ban Yochanan ben Zakai mean every city with a bedin you blow the shofar on Shabbat? Or only in the Bedadin of Yavne, you blow the Shofar on Shabbat. Amrullah, they told him, Echad Yavne, Echad Kol Makom, Shedro Bedin. And this is an argument, do we blow the Shofar in every place that has a Bedin, or only in Yavne's Bedin? Nonetheless, what do you see Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai did? Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai created a situation in which until today, Jews were not allowed to blow the Shofar on Shabbat, Except for in the Ben Mikdash. What status does he give to the new city of Yavne? The same status as the Ben Mikdash, Yerushalayim. This is an intentional move on the part of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai. In order to compel the people to treat this new capital of the Jewish world the same as Yerushalayim. If you look at the bottom of the page, on page, on page 29b, Tanur Rabbanan, our rabbis taught. פעם אחת, one time, חל ראש השנה להיות בשבת. ראש השנה fell out on שבת. אמר להם רבן יוחנן בן זכאי, לבני בטרה, נתקע? רבן יוחנן בן זכאי tells the rabbis of בני בטרה, should we blow the shofar? אמרו לו, נדון. Let's think about it, let's talk about it, let's discuss whether or not you should blow the shofar on שבת. אמר להם, נתקע, ואחר כך נדון. First let's blow the shofar, then let's discuss it. לאחר שתקעו, so after they blow the shofar, אמרו לו, נדון, let's have a conversation now. אמר להם, כבר נשמעה קרן ביבנה, ואין משיבין לאחר המעשה. We already blew the shofar. There's no point to have a conversation anymore. What is the one that comes like I do? He convinced the other chachamim to blow the shofar, not halakhically. He just did it anyways. And once he did it, he said, look, we did it. Nothing happened, that's what we're going to keep doing. We're going to keep blowing the Shofar on Shabbat. You find that already in the generation of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai, not all the Chachamim were clear that you should blow the Shofar on Shabbat in front of the Bedin of Yavne, but he did it anyways. And this is the Halakha. The Halakha states that we blow the Shofar only in front of the Bedin Hagadol. Now the Rif, Rabbi Tzad al-Fasi, his opinion was, any place where there is a Bedin, you blow the Shofar on Shabbat or Shana. Any place. Why? What's the reason you don't blow the Shavar on Roshana? Because you might come to carry the Shofar Birshut Arabim. Let me ask you a question. Why do the rabbis tell you in a place where there's an Eruv you can carry the Shofar? It's a big deal. You can carry the Shofar. Why don't they tell you that? What? Why don't they say it's dependent on whether you can carry or not? Well, not everywhere is a problem to carry on Shabbat, right? I don't know if you want to hear the answer to this question. We do. We don't. We don't blow the Shofar in a place where there's no roof. Well, tell me an answer. Our Chachamin we're not familiar with this invention that we created called an Eruv. It's not a solution. For the rabbis of the Talmud, this doesn't work. There's no such thing as an Eruv. Not like that. Not the string on a pole. So it's never a solution. If it was a solution, the rabbis would have told you about it. But for another shiur about Eruvin. Right now, don't talk about Eruvin. Rosh once in my life, in the old city of Yerushalayim, I was there Shabbat of Rosh and this new reconvened Sanhedrin came to blow the shofar there. I didn't go. After Rosh Harapel asked me if I went or not. Well, I didn't go. He said, you should have gone. I said, why? He said, because who cares? Worst case scenario, they weren't allowed to blow the shofar. They made the avera, but you at least got to hear the shofar in Rosh Hashanah. Why would you lose out on hearing the shofar in Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah, blowing the shofar, it's a biblical commandment. 
It's very unusual that because maybe you might carry it, you're getting rid of a, of a biblical commandment. That's why the leaf says, any place where there's a betadin, the betadin will not allow people to violate Shabbat in order to blow the shofar. So they'll, they will take care of the procedure of blowing the shofar. And we don't accuse Dayanim of not knowing how to keep the laws of Shabbat. You could solve the problem very easily. What can I tell you? I didn't rule the halakha. And what we do is when there is a Rosh Hashanah that falls out on Shabbat, the custom is not to blow the shofar. As difficult as that might be to accept. Even though it's a biblical commandment. Now we have one more thing in this uh, section of the Talmud. If you'll open up, go back to the Talmud and click on Masechet Sukkah. Sukkah. So you want to go back to Safaria, Talmud Bavli. Click on Tractate Sukkah and find yourself on page 41a. The Mishnah on page 41a says, Barishona originally, Originally, the halakha was instituted in the Jewish people that on Sukkot, you take the lulav and etog. Why do they say you take the lulav and etog and not wave the lulav and etog? What's the bracha you say on the lulav and etog? Al netilas lulav. What does it mean, litol lulav? What does it mean? To take it, to pick it up. Yes? Once you pick up the leaven at all, you have fulfilled your mitzvah. Please, this year, Sukkot, don't play this game of upside down at all, right side up at all. It's a nonsensical thing. Put the etog on the table and only pick up the lulav and the hadasim and the halavot. Recite a beracha and then pick up the etog the right way. Shalom That's the way you should pick up the leaven at all. Why do we take it seven days in the Ben Mikdash and only one day in the rest of Israel? What does the Torah say? In the verse in Vayikra that says that we must take a love in the Torah, what does the Torah say? And you should rejoice. And you should take for yourself on the first day of Sukkot. Yes? The four species. And you should rejoice in front of Hashem, your God, seven days. From here, our rabbis teach us, Moshe Rabbeinu Taras and Sinai, there's a biblical commandment to take a lulav and a tov only on the first day of Sukkot. The first day is a biblical commandment. The rest of the days of Sukkot, you only take a lulav and a tov if you are in the presence of Hashem, meaning you are in the Ben Mikdash. In the Ben Mikdash, you take a lulav and a tov for seven days. The rest of the Jewish people elsewhere only take a lulav and a tov on the first day and you're done. You don't need a lulav and a tov for the rest of the days of Sukkot. When the Ben Mikdash was destroyed, Hitkin Rabban Yochanan Ben Zakai, the Rabban Yochanan Ben Zakai instituted, that you will take the Lulav and Etog for seven days anywhere in the Jewish people, wherever you are. In commemoration of the Mikdash, some understand this to say that the Jewish people shouldn't lose their morale. Just because the Ben Mikdash is destroyed doesn't mean Judaism is over you can still continue to do mitzvot as if we had a Ben Mikdash. This innovation of Rabban Yochanan Ben Zakai, you still do. This year, you are going to take a Lavan Etog all seven days of Sukkot. Who taught you that halakha? It's not what the Torah says. The Torah says only on the first day. Rabban Yochanan Ben Zakai, in the power that he has in the Sanhedrin, makes, makes for a change in Judaism. I want to share with you now something that I've told you about before. Parts of it we've read before in different pieces. Parts of it we've read in different pieces. And this is about the Sephardic concept of Galut. Unfortunately, this is not a very well-known part of Judaism, but it's something that, that is so crucial for us to know. There's nothing I can do about the fact that Am Yisrael doesn't know this. So many of the problems we have today, it's because what I'm about to share with you, Am Yisrael has no awareness of. I read this to you a long time ago, and maybe I touched on it again in the teachings of Maran when I was doing that class in the United Kingdom. And I regret that I didn't copy this for you because I was on the run today due to the Sheva Berachot that we just had. But I'll read it to you again, and I ask you to listen. But if you guys want to move closer, you're welcome to come up here. Chacham Fa'u. Alav Shalom. 
In his introduction to his book, Rabbi Yisrael Moshe Chazan, The Man and His Teachings. It's a book in Hebrew, but there is a part of it that is in English. And it's a book that I use a lot, if you could tell from the amount of bookmarks that I have in the book. Chacham Thor writes the following. Autonomy, rather than freedom, is the basic concept underlying the Sephardic tradition. You heard? Autonomy, not freedom. Autonomy means self-government according to one's own laws and values. A society is autonomous when the ordering of human conduct and the adjustment of human relations are relative to its own criteria and interests. It presupposes a law independent of political and religious bureaucracies as the only source of government and authority. Autonomy, not freedom. Spiritually, this concept finds ultimate expression in the idea of a historical berit, a bilateral covenant, freely entered by God and the people of Israel at the foot of Har Sinai, and later reiterated in the plains of Moab. Yes, it's, uh, the source for this, again, is Rabbi Faur's book, Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan, The Man and His Teachings. I can actually send you a PDF of this. Let me think. I believe that I have a scanned copy. Oh, but I, let's actually do this. Give me a second. I'm going to send it to you so you can follow along with me. Give me one second. I forgot that I have a copy of this. And I only want to send it to the people who are here. Let's try. Books. I'm going to send this out right now in the Google Classroom, so give me a second. This book is only for you to have. This is not for the world. I'll post it both in the Night Color class and in the Shiviti Special Classroom. So if you're in those two classrooms, You'll get it. Is there anyone else in a different classroom from those? just sent it out. Give it a second and it'll get to your devices wherever you are. It's worth reading this along with me. Okay. Should have got it by now. In the Google Classroom. Did you guys get a pop-up yet? Look in the classwork section of the of the. You see the classwork section. In go to your stream. Yeah, for, you can refresh. Why don't you refresh the stream? Slide the screen down and refresh it. I'm in your Google Classroom. In the stream, it says new material. Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan. Do you see that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you guys see it? Mm -hmm. Yes? Now open that file. 
basically the English introduction is all the way in the back of the book. So you want to go to the last page of the book. Go all the way to the last page of the book. Okay, and I'm on page three where it says introduction, which is that's page 203 of your PDF. Yeah, you see it? I'm in the middle of this paragraph. At the very end. So it's page 203 of that PDF. Anyone need help finding this? This covenant established the law with all the norms and regulations that govern the people of Israel. Accordingly, the autonomy of Israel is the effect of the covenant, and it is guaranteed by God and the people. This covenant is sacred and eternal. As sacred, the law does not depend on promulgation and cannot be subjected to abrogation by any authority, human or divine. When the biblical prophets charged the king and the priest in the name of the law, they were in fact postulating the belief that the values governing Israel lie beyond political authority and ecclesiastical bureaucracy. The law is the ground for governing an authority, not, the, not its, its effect. Therefore, the law is operative independently from government and political bureaucracies. I'm skipping down a few lines. Oh, let's keep reading. Why not? Let's keep reading. Likewise, national integrity is the effect of the internal legal institutions governing the people, not of their ability to control a particular geographical area. For the Jewish nationalists among us, it is very important to know something about Judaism before we purport to understand the faith that we are part of. I'll read it again. National integrity is the effect of the internal legal institutions governing the people, not of their ability to control a particular geographical area. This idea of national autonomy may be described as the theological political form of government in contradistinction with the political bureaucratic form of government in which absolute sovereignty constitutes the basis of authority and establishes the right for the civil and the criminal administration of justice. The survival of the people of Israel is a direct result of this belief. As they were losing all forms of earthly power, which generation is Rav Chanfo referring to? Very good, the generation of Aban Yochanan ben Zakkai. As they were losing all forms of earthly power, they became more and more aware that their national integrity was not predicated upon territorial sovereignty and that the bureaucratic political system of authority is incompatible with the idea of berit, of covenant with Hashem. It is pertinent to know, listen carefully, that galut, exile, in the Sephardic tradition is principally a political concept in its barest form it means that the Jewish nation was not dissolved with the territorial loss of its homeland. Accordingly, the Sephardim viewed themselves as members of the Jewish nation rather than of the Jewish religion. For years, for years, I was trying to explain to people one of the greatest divides in understanding between the Sephardim and Ashkenazim. What you are reading right now is exactly, exactly the major difference. There are many more, don't worry. But when it comes to concepts like Mashiach and redemption and the state of Israel, the land of Israel, and the Torah of Israel, and political involvement of the nations, and so on and so forth. This last sentence, Sephardim viewed themselves as members of the Jewish nation rather than of the Jewish religion. Now keep reading with me. And I would love to read this whole introduction to you one day, but not for today. The theological political idea of autonomy and national integrity applies in a democratic society that recognizes the law as its supreme authority. However, in order that the law, the Torah, should be the actual source of authority in government, there is a need for a legal code formulated in precise and clear language. Maimonides' codification of the entire system of Jewish law was designed to perform this function to give an autonomous Jewish nation in exile a clear, articulate code of law. The publication of the Shulchan Aruch by Maran Yosef Karo and its formal acceptance by the Sephardic communities as the supreme code of law projected in all its fullness the ideal of a democratic society first proclaimed by the Lord in Israel at the foot of Hazi 
it is also an emphatic rejection of the bureaucratic political system that governs through casuistry and the manipulation of the law. In such a system, the people have no access to the law. The law is not the ground of authority, but its effect. It is worth pointing out that the codification of law and formulation in precise categories, I'm on page 5, in, in the top of the page, say 5. In precise categories, an intelligible language does not impair its growth and development. So the Rambam or Maran, writing down all of the laws of Israel in clear, simple Hebrew, does not dumb down Judaism. Just like the proper formulation of the laws of physics by Newton and Einstein did not impair the growth of science, but helped to eliminate the morass of chaos and confusion prevailing in that field. The enormous volume of legal literature produced by the Sephardic tradition and its superior quality, this is Chavor, the Sephardic rabbi, testifies to the validity of our point. I was recently talking to somebody. If you live in California and you're driving on the street and there's a red light in front of you, you see the red light, you stop, full stop. Now you want to turn right. Do you have to wait for the light to turn green before it turns? Do you make it right? No. In California, we have a law that allows us to make right on red. There may be exceptions in some places, I don't know. But for the most part in California, we're allowed to make a right on red. What about New York? How is Florida like? You guys are allowed to make a right on red. No? Yes. In Florida you can? No. I asked him about Florida. Now tell me about Manhattan. Manhattan, you for sure cannot make a right on red. What happens if you go to New York? What happens if you go to New York and you're driving down the street and you make a right on red? And you see those lights flashing behind, light behind you? And they pull you over. And the police officer looks at you and says, what are you doing? Are you crazy? You're driving on red. Says, no! I make rights on red. What do you mean make rights? The law says you can. I'm from California. My minhag is that we're allowed to make rights on red. My rabbi said we can make right on red. What's going to happen to you? You're going to get even a bigger ticket than you got the first time around. This attitude that there's somehow a halakha, but my custom allows me to circumvent the halakha because, because I can make a right on red in New York. I'm from California. It doesn't make any sense in the legal code. Maybe in some religious world it makes sense. But not when you view Judaism as a, as a nation that has a, a ton of, it's an autonomous Jewish nation with its own independent legal code. It's why Sephardim around the world accepted one legal code. Even begrudgingly giving up the Rambam for Maran. Why? So that when you're in Turkey or in Morocco or in Iraq or Iran or Egypt or Lebanon or Syria or Tunisia, Algeria, you would get a ticket in one place and the other court of law on the other side of the world would respect that ticket. You would sue your business partner and the same penal code that they use in Turkey is the same one they use in Yemen. That was not true by our brothers and sisters Ashkenazim. In, in, independent autonomy to govern themselves, to run their own court systems. Until 1948, Sephardic countries had their own chief rabbis, their own bataydin, their own prison systems, their own taxation systems, their own everything. We were not governed by the nations under whom we lived. I'm going to read to you a little more somewhere else. If you look here, this is a golden introduction. I, can't, I just don't have the ability to read it all with you today. If you look on page 7, From the preceding, it follows that the ultimate objective of Jewish leadership ought to be the preservation of Jewish autonomy in all its political, judicial, and cultural aspects. Freedom in the sense of equal access to the entire gamut of the economic, social, and political opportunities of the state. I'm sorry to those of you who have been born and bred in a world in which being part of any country that you live is the greatest value was the most serious challenge to the national integrity of the Jewish people. How so? Jews in Muslim countries clearly perceived that this type of freedom 
is incompatible with Jewish autonomy. Traditionally, and until our own times, meaning until the founding of the State of Israel, ironically, Jews in Muslim lands enjoyed internal autonomy and were recognized as members of the Jewish nation in exile. And listen very carefully, because for those who have preconceived notions, this footnote is perhaps the most important thing you're going to read with me tonight. Footnote 8. This point has escaped the attention of Jewish scholars who are quick to describe the position of the Jew in Muslim lands as that of a second-rate citizen without taking into consideration the fact that in these countries the Jew never wanted to forfeit his own national autonomy. We were second-rate because we chose to be second-rate. We were given as many opportunities as our European brethren to assimilate into the culture in which we were living. But we time after time after time preferred to maintain our own autonomy as a nation and be second-class citizens than to melt and lose our own autonomy. Jews in Muslim lands, like other Sephardim in Western Europe, prior to the French Revolution, were not second-rate citizens, but members of the Jewish nation. It ought to be remembered that demand for citizenship from the host government meant the recognition of that government as the supreme legal and political authority of the Jews. You can sue somebody in Bedin today in the Jewish world? The Bedin can compel someone to give a get today? You have a functional Bedin system in any country in the world today? We lost all of that. For what? For the court system that we have here? Therefore, Christians who favored granting citizenship to the Jews demanded as a condition of, forgive my butchering, sine non, the abolition of the Jewish nation. Otherwise, to grant citizenship to the Jew would be as ridiculous as granting citizenship to a foreign citizen. The modern Jew, who is a citizen of the USA, or USSR, it tells you when this book was written, enjoys the political freedom of other citizens. But he does not enjoy Jewish autonomy, as did the Jewish communities in Muslim lands who had their own courts of justice, were judged by their own laws, paid taxes as an independent corporation, and on the top of page 8, the bottom of page 8, maintained their own penal and educational systems. From the point of view of national autonomy, emancipation is a betrayal of the highest interests and ideals of the Jewish nation. Unless one maintains, as the Jews in Muslim lands did, I'm afraid to read this to you because I'm afraid to upset you. Unless one maintains, as the Jews in Muslim lands did, that we are an autonomous nation, it makes no juridical sense to claim a national right to the Holy Land. You are not a nation. You are a group of religious people who float through other people's countries, who are equal citizens of those countries. We are a nation, not just autonomous, but with all of the benefits and institutions of any other autonomous nation in the world. Our Chacham Bashi led a network of legal courts, Bataydin, that were charged with taxation, that were charged with the penalties of every kind, that taxed the Jewish community independently. Sure, there were countries where we had to pay a tax to the, uh, those abusers who were above us. We're not saying not. But we never agreed to become equal citizens. Because to be equal would be a betrayal of the integrity of the Jewish nation. The mess that you and I find ourselves in today is the Jewish community is a Judaism that is so wonderfully religious. Shabbat and kosher and tefillin and mezuzot and tzitzit. But the dream of a Ben-Mikdash, of a national homeland, of a, all of those things are jeopardized by the fact that the last two sections of Shulchan Aruch are not binding on us. We don't have any institutions that are in charge of those areas of halakha. If I can, I want to read to you a little more and then I'll wrap this part up. It was the desire for Jewish autonomy back in the last sentence of page 7. It was the desire for Jewish autonomy that moved the Jews to abandon their ancestral homes in the Iberian Peninsula and join their brethren in North Africa, the Ottoman Empire, and other Jewish communities in the Near East. The Jew who exchanged his national autonomy for freedom 
under the garb of Christianity, believed that somehow he would be able to preserve his own eternal autonomy. His own internal autonomy. That his patterns of thought and feelings would not be subjected to outside authority and regulations. Unlike his new co-religionalists, he did not surrender his internal autonomy to the political and ecclesiastical bureaucracies of the state, thus becoming the choice victim of the Inquisition. The reason the Jews were the victims of the Inquisition is because we refused to give in and become like them. It is worth remembering the sole purpose of the Inquisition was the ratification of heresy. Its victims were persecuted on the basis of what they thought rather than what they did. In the majority of cases concerning new Christians, heresy did not involve a coherent or deliberate theological system that conflicted with Christianity. The Jews who had converted to Christianity during the Inquisition didn't maintain some glorious Judaism, a coherent faith that they had, but ideas and values lingering from the Jewish past, an extension of the belief in the sacredness of personal autonomy. In a deeper sense, the Inquisition reflects the inability of the Catholic Church to Catholicize to its own constituents, the new Christians, through rational means. At the same time, it taught to the Jewish converts in rather vivid terms the actual meaning of Catholic love and universal charity as practiced and understood by their new religion. We were the recipients of Christian love in the Inquisition. Balthazar Lopez, a victim of the auto held on June 1654, illustrates the attitude of the new Christians towards their adopted religion. As the executioner was completing his task, a priest came to him inquiring whether he was truly repentant. So this Mr. Lopez was being killed by the Inquisition for being Jewish. And this priest comes to him as the man's about to kill him and said, do you repent? Do you accept Yeshu? Do you accept Christianity? Looking at the priest straight in the face, Mr. Lopez replied, Father, on page 9, do you think that this is the time to joke? Are you trying to make fun of me now? You think that right now I'm going to give in to Christianity? Who do you think you are? A more poignant illustration was provided by Francisco de Santa Fe, a counselor to the governor and a son of the notorious Jewish apostate and champion of Christianity, Geronimo who committed suicide by jumping from a tower rather than appear before the Inquisition. His mortal remains were burnt in the auto celebrated in December 1486. The tenacity with which the new Christians adhered to their personal autonomy has no parallel in history. It was a constant source of wonder to their new co-religionists who were incapable of understanding why anyone should adhere to a particular value or idea even in the face of death. It would be opportune to quote Diego Justiniano, I don't know how to pronounce his middle name, Archbishop of Craganor, in the sermon that he addressed to the victims of the auto. So here they are about to murder all of these Jews. And they're giving them sermons as if it was Sunday morning in church. In the sermon that he addressed to the victims of the auto celebrated in Lisbon on September 1705, he said to the Jews, it's 1705, when does the Inquisition start? 1492. This is 1705 and they're still burning Jews. In the United States, the last Inquisition office closed its door in New Mexico in the year... What year? In the United States of America, there was a Catholic Inquisition office in New Mexico until... 1927. Now obviously they weren't able to burn Jews alive anymore. But they were on the hunt for heretics. That's what they did. This mentality, by the way, of persecuting the other is a very Christian mentality that Jews have readily adopted. They still have an Inquisition office. It's just not called the Inquisition office anymore. He's looking at these Jews in September of 1705. That's, we're now in September almost? 1705. Almost 300 years ago. More, a little more 300 years ago. He said... You are a people whose patience has never been exhausted by long protracted hope, to whose minds the clearest evidence does not bring conviction, whom the severest suffering 
only disposes the more inveterately to persist in your obstinacy. Chastisement that softens brutes only makes you more stubborn. Evidence that convinces even fools only renders you more positive. Hope that wearies the spirit of others makes you more endurant. There is so much more in this chapter that I wish to read to you. But when I think of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai and what he is doing in the Bet HaMikdash is not radical if you think about Jewish history as a Sephardic Chacham would. When I say Sephardic Chacham, I have no shame in telling you that I believe that the Chachamim of the Talmud and the Chachamim of Sefarad were directly connected to each other in every which way possibly. possible. In their Torah, in their outlook on life, in their legal system, in their philosophy, and in their culture. They are the same people. And you look at what Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai is doing. What's the message he's trying to teach the Jewish people? The Romans can take away our Bet HaMikdash. The Romans can take away our capital city. The Romans can burn down the building of the Sanhedrin to the ground. You know what the Romans cannot do to us? They can't stop us from being an independent, autonomous nation in exile. The Romans cannot force us into Galut. Because so long as we maintain a Sanhedrin, so long as we have a capital city anywhere, so long as we govern ourselves with a family of Rabban Gamliel, then we are not yet in exile. And therefore, if you were to look at Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai today and say, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, when is Galut going to end? He'll look at you so bewildered because that's the answer to your question. When the Jewish people govern themselves once again, when the Jewish people establish for themselves the Sanhedrin once again, when the Jewish people realize that for Sepharadim, the center, Galut, exile, in the Sephardic tradition is principally a political concept. We are members of the Jewish nation, not of the Jewish religion. There's one last piece of the life of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai that sadly I won't have time to do today. I am highly considering finishing the life of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai on Thursday night instead of our regular Agarita class, if you will give me permission to do that. But for tonight, I want you to walk away and look at Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai not as a radical, a radical who tries to confuse the Jewish people and they don't have a temple but still convince them that his new capital in Yavne is the be-all, end-all. But rather... Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai is continuing the authentic Jewish tradition that taught HaKadosh Baruch doesn't need Yerushalayim. He doesn't need the Bet HaMikdash. Wherever the Jewish people will set up shop and govern themselves, they will already be free people. Of course we want Yerushalayim. Of course we will build the Bet HaMikdash. Of course. But don't get distracted by the details. Realize that freedom for us is autonomy, not equality. I don't care to be an equal citizen of any country in the world. I care to be allowed to be a citizen of my own nation. I care to be able to govern my own people by ourselves, independently, without anyone else sticking their nose in between. I wish to allow my Jewish children and my community to experience a Jewish culture in which no other culture has the right to meddle or interfere or to tell us what is right or what is ethical or what is moral or what is correct. We have the right to govern ourselves. And the freedom that you think you have reminds me of the saying of a famous African leader whose name is slipping my mind. I heard him in my wife, one of her classes. It's a famous saying, so you may know it yourself. He said, when the Christians came to Africa, they gave us the Bible and they told us to close our eyes. And first, before we close our eyes, we had the land and they had the Bible. But by the time we had opened up our eyes, we had the Bible and they had the land. And I feel so much. The Jewish people, they fool themselves. Wow, we live in, I'm grateful to everything that this country has done for the Jewish people. Don't understand from me a lack, uh, some kind of disrespect to this wonderful country. That's not what you're hearing from me. But I don't need it. I don't need the right to vote. I don't need the right to fair representation. I need the right to know that our people are autonomous, are independent, that we will govern ourselves 
that we will take care of our own problems in the way that our Torah has taught us. That we will look up to our scholars and our sages and not to actors from Hollywood or to any other political system in the world. I don't want those people to give values to my children. And neither should you. And part of being a Jewish person is realizing that freedom is not equality. Freedom is autonomy. Personal autonomy and national autonomy. And that's what gives a Jew, a Mr. Lopez, the strength to look at his executioner in his eye and say, are you making fun of me right now? You think that now I'm going to become a Christian? All the things you did until now weren't going to do it. You think now you're joking? That courage, that obstinacy that was complained about, that is the secret of Judaism. That is the secret of what our Chachamim are giving us. Bezat Hashem, when you blow the Shofar of Zoshana and you take the Lulav and Etog on the wrong days, think to yourself, I'm taking a Lulav and Etog on a day that our Chachamim told us to because this custom that I'm doing by taking a Lulav and Etog is a fulfillment of that which we are governing ourselves. We have our own Jewish rabbinate that is telling us, take a love and a talk today. You have the right to do so. When we begin to think about this concept, and I highly recommend you read this introduction its entirety on your own, and meditate long and hard about this introduction, things will make sense to you that perhaps never before made sense. For now, I want to wish all of you a Shana Tovah Mutuka. We're going to pray Arvit and Selichot. For all of you who've been learning with me throughout the year, or all the years that we've been learning together, I wish you the blessing of our Paitan who said, Let this year and all of her curses end. Let this year and all of her blessings begin. It's been a tremendous two years of curses the world has seen. And it's time for us, not just for Am Yisrael, on behalf of the whole world, we're going to pray to HaKadosh Baruch Hu this coming Monday night and Tuesday and Wednesday. And to tell HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we need a better time for Am Yisrael. We need the ability to see goodness, to end all of the curses, and to accept upon ourselves a year of blessing. Thank you for being part of the Shiviti Kilacha Shonai family. I love all of you, and I look forward to celebrating the coming holidays with all of you again.